Let's be seated. And kiddos, if y'all are going to class, then you can meet Miss Micah over here in the corner by the red banner over here. We're excited to have our kids learning about the attributes of God. We're excited to be doing more than just um, taking kids maybe away from you for a few minutes and like turning on VeggieTales for them. Like we're excited that we can do things on purpose here to teach them stuff that they're going to carry with them for the rest of their lives and to lay a firm foundation for them in a way that they can understand. So Micah, we're glad for what y'all do over there and for all the teachers that do that. If y'all see them, let them know they're appreciated and what they're uh, doing is important. So I need a different microphone maybe. It's fine. Oh, oh it's the presence, right? That's what it is. Oh, okay. Well, y'all just become tone deaf to that one tone and we'll get started. Lord, we just thank you so much that we have an opportunity to come before your word this morning. And we acknowledge that when we come to you, that darkness will flee in your name. That darkness runs from your presence. We acknowledge that there's power in your name and that there's power from your spirit that lives inside of all who believe. God, we come to you this morning knowing that we're forgetful people that we don't have it all together, even if we want you to think that we do. And we just come to you acknowledging that we need to hear from you, Lord. That we need to see more about you. That we need to learn more about you, but we don't need to learn more about you just so that we can file it away. But we desperately need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So God, would you bring the scriptures to us, and then would you make our hearts alive so that they can be applied. Not just so we can do some more good works either, but so that we can see your good works toward us and we can glorify you. God, we ask for your blessing this morning so that we can return it as praise. As we look this morning at the story of a, a man who desperately needed your mercy, we ask that you would help us to just have eyes to see it. Help us to connect these truths to the other things we've been studying throughout the month of May. And ultimately, lift our eyes up to you. Like the song says that we just sang a couple minutes ago, would you open up our eyes and wonder? Would you show us who you are, lead us to where your heart is, God, and then out of that, would we overflow in love to those that are around us? God, we acknowledge that some of us have come in here this morning and it might be easy for us to be carrying disappointments or carrying bitterness or carrying unresolved discord between one another, Lord. We ask that your work this morning in us would be drawing us nearer, reconciling those, those sinful attitudes and hearts that we can bring in, Lord. We ask that your work for some of us this morning would be to strengthen the weak part, this, parts that are within us. Lord, would you meet us in our weakness? Lord, would you meet us in our need? Lord, would you help us to be totally and completely honest about where we stand before you so that we can properly ask you for help and so that you can get the glory from the help that you give? We pray all this in your name. Amen. 
for real, I can use this if you want. Okay. <laughs> or not. That's it's about to be like an old school tent revival in here. I'm just so, okay. I don't preach with these often, but I feel like when I do, I'm going to get more excited than normal. I just, there's something about like, you know, breathing heavy and like having a little sweat rack or something. Like that's how we do it down south. Anywho, I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. And throughout the month of May, we have been talking about a topic that we're calling image bearers. So no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done, somebody has cursed me because they said, when you say that sentence, I think boy, brand, boy bands, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you do, as long as you love me, you know that song. I'm not going to sing it, but that's how I'm going to remember the month of May. <laughs> now, that's the whole point of all five weeks, is no matter all that stuff, your story fits into God's big story. If you feel like you've been disqualified from being involved in God's big story, that's not true. All of our stories, good, bad, believing, unbelieving, super helpful for society, or infamous, God has sovereignly placed all of our stories inside of the biggest, greatest, most beautiful story that has ever been told. And that's the story of his goodness, the story of his redeeming work for the whole universe. And so, yeah, we've just picked a little tiny topic in the month of May, like the entire like history of the universe and like the entire purpose of everything that ever existed. So that's what we're talking about in the month of May. And so for the past two weeks, we talked about the book of Ruth and Inside the story of Ruth, we've seen that God, God's heart is consistently moved throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament in particular, for four groups of people. And as we come to know God, look like God, love what God loves, our hearts will be moved for these four people too. And these four people, as they're transformed, these four types of people, as they're transformed by the glory of God, as they come to faith, their stories begin to sing and they become to harmonize in what the Old Testament calls the quartet of the vulnerable. How many of y'all ever heard a good quartet? Good barbershop quartet, maybe? No? Any, any nerds in the room? So these four people, these four groups throughout the Old Testament, their stories coalesce to say, even though I am weak, through the strength of God, my story has beauty. And so we talked about the refugee and the widow as those stories show up and as those parts of our lives and Ruth and Naomi's lives were showcased in the book of Ruth. So that's what we spent the last two weeks talking about. This week, we're going to talk about God's heart for the fatherless and a really beautiful story from the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is near the beginning of the Old Testament. I would tell you where to flip in your paper Bibles, but you probably have an app and it's going to be on the screen too. So we're going to be looking in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. But before we do, I want to talk about food. <laughs> Is that okay? How many of y'all are hungry right now? How many of y'all know, know what you're eating right after this? And you can like involve more than your, more than one sense. You're probably like tasting it right now. You're thinking about it, something like that. Or if you're cooking it, you're thinking, oh man, I have to start cooking after this and then I'm going to be so hungry by the time it's actually done. Anyway, so what is your all-time favorite meal? Think about it for a minute. And I'm not thinking like, what's your favorite drive-through to go through? But like, in the past, like, what has been your favorite food experience? Do you have it? Do you have it in your head? Thinking about it? 
I'll tell you what Jill's is. Jill's favorite food experience was, and I happen to, I mean, I don't know if it's my favorite, but hers was a place called Bouchon. Yeah, kind of bougie, right? <laughs> so it's this French place. It's in Las Vegas at the Venetian Hotel. Immaculate place. These like marble, like it's, I don't know. It's wonderful. If you've ever been to the Venetian, you know, like nothing is unclean at the Venetian. Everything is like larger than life and sparkling. And this place was serving brunch. And I don't know if you can ever actually be like appropriately dressed. Like I just felt underdressed. And I don't know that I ever could have like met the dress code <laughs> at a place like this. So country bumpkin like me came in and had like the best food ever. Like everything was fresh. The bread was like, you know that they know how to make bread at this wonderful French place. And it was just indoor, outdoor seating. The whole vibe of everything was like romantic, immaculate, great. Like romantic, but brunch at the same time. It was great. So that was hers. And mine is probably a little bit simpler. So, but ours was, or mine was like on our wedding day. So, you know, you get married, you go to the reception, and then like everybody else eats the food, but you don't really like eat the food if you're the bride or the groom, because it's your like sacred unspoken duty to like go make small talk with everybody at the place. And so they like prepare a plate for you, but you don't really eat it. Or maybe if you have a wedding planner that like helps you eat a little bit, they're a good wedding planner, but you're always hungry and you're always thirsty and you're always kind of like tired after your own wedding. So we get through this beautiful wedding where all these people from Martinsburg just like sent us off and it felt like, like just a big family thing. Um, so we get in the Honda Civic and we drive away and we stop at Wendy's on Edwin Miller Boulevard. And we don't get anything necessarily to eat, but we get like the biggest soda <laughs> that they'll like sell to you. And our throats were so dry and it was just like, we did it. Like, we're married. Is this what being married is? Like, I'm just really thirsty. And it was like one of my favorite experiences. And it was like the least fancy thing ever. So uh, that, that came out wrong. But what I'm saying is that sometimes we enjoy meals for the objective awesomeness of the food. And sometimes we enjoy a, a meal or an experience like that because of who we're with. Isn't it just such a beautiful thing to think back on the people that you're closest to and maybe your parents or your grandparents and think about those times that you spent at their dinner table. No matter if they're a good cook, bad cook, that's where the memories are made. The memories with your kids are made around the dinner table and you can remember certain goofy things that, you know, maybe you'll tell the story and maybe people will be like, why is that significant? But it'll be close to your heart. And at the same time, we see food being used like that in the Old Testament to show how God gives a warm welcome to people. So we saw last week, there was a warm welcome that was extended to an outsider. And that showed us a lot about God's heart for the outsider. Today, we're going to see another experience that's very similar to that. And at the table, we really see God's heartbeat in a special, crystal clear kind of way. Isaiah actually describes heaven as a meal. And you may have heard before, like, heaven is, can be called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And so let me read this Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. This is how heaven is described by the prophet. He said, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich full marrow, an aged wine well refined. He's all about the wine. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from their faces. So two really powerful, beautiful truths that we cling to, swallowing up death forever, wiping tears from our eyes in heaven, it's happening around a table where grace and mercy is being dispensed in the most real way that folks have ever experienced. And so it's not the only way to think about heaven, but it is a powerful biblical image to see God giving out grace at mealtime because we're hungry folks that are in need. And think about this. Who does Jesus, who does the Lord put on the guest list to the marriage supper of the Lamb? We end up, by faith, on that guest list. Not because of any sort of celebrity status or any sort of, I don't know what, that you would add to the party, but because he chose to bring us in. So last week, whenever we looked at Ruth and the story, the love story of Ruth and Boaz, we see Boaz acting a lot like the Lord. Boaz invites Ruth to his table. And we see that warm welcome that Boaz offers to Ruth as an outsider. Even though she didn't look like Boaz, she didn't talk like Boaz, she probably had a funny accent that he had a hard time understanding, like she was not from there. Like, even though all those things may have made it difficult socially, she was welcome to pull up a chair. And she was welcome to, he even showed her the custom, like, here's what we're eating, here's how you eat it. Here, dip this bread, dip this grain in, in the oil here. This is how we eat. And you don't have to feel uncomfortable like you don't know what's going on. I will give you everything you need to be one of us, even though you're not asking for it. So here's Ruth and Boaz, bottomless breadsticks at the Olive Garden, just by God's grace. And this week, we're going to see another person that's been invited to the table. And this guy can't even pull up a chair on his own. His name is, it's a mouthful, Mephibosheth. Can y'all say it? Say Mephibosheth. There you go. Okay. I want y'all to be able to say that because it's a beautiful story and his story is worth telling. But I think a lot of people don't talk about him because they can't even say his name out loud. It's like a long name. So Mephibosheth is a recipient of God's grace. And like I said, he can't even pull up his own chair to the table, and you'll see why here in just a minute. So Mephibosheth is a man that receives radical grace. And in just a moment, right in the text, we'll see how his life changes. And not because he made a decision, but because somebody acted in kindness toward him and showed him steadfast love, and he humbly received that steadfast love. And that's what God is calling us to do and to replicate. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. So the main point that you can write down and then take a nap if you want to is this. We should receive and radiate God's hospitality. And so I'm using that word hospitality to show that God is loving us and welcoming us in. And so we'll define hospitality here in a minute. So we're receiving 
God's hospitality. And then once we've received it, we can radiate it in a way that others will take notice of, in a way that God will get glory for too. Y'all got it? All right. Second Samuel chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse 1. The text says, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said back, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. He fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for Mephibosheth and bring in the produce so that your new master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands as servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth, yep, that one, Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became his servants. So he lived in Jerusalem because he ate always at the king's table. And now he was lame in both his feet. So this is our text for this morning. It's kind of a show-stopping thing. And the Bible has a way of doing that sometimes. Sometimes you'll be reading something in the Old Testament and it'll be like, this guy begat this guy, and then we went here, and then we fought these people, and this is how the battle turned out. And we're giving you a long, like, train of history, and then boom, all of a sudden, here's the thing we need to zoom in on because it's going to teach you something important about the Lord. So like I said before, this story is about Mephibosheth, a broken nobody who is an enemy of the king receiving something that he didn't deserve at all. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Mephibosheth's poor condition, David's kindness to Mephibosheth, and then number three, hold on, I, I promise I wrote a third one. Jesus is the greater David, and we're a lot like Mephibosheth. So I want you to see how we can actually 
relate to this story? Because a lot of times we say, what character am I? We're like taking this BuzzFeed quiz as we're reading the Bible. We want to know like where we fit in the story. And I'm here to tell you that we're not the hero in this story. And we're going to see how Jesus is the hero of this story in a way that inspires worship. So let's start with Mephibosheth's poor condition. So we meet this guy in verse 3 of this passage when Ziba mentions his name. So let me read it again. There is a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in both of his feet. So the king said, where is he? And they said, he's in Lodubar. And then they came and, and brought him. And David discovers in this point that Jonathan, his best friend, his covenanted brother in God, still had a son that was left behind that he may have not even been aware of. This guy, his name is Mephibosheth, and some scholars believe that actually his name was changed from his birth name to this new name because the name Mephibosheth literally means despised one. And nobody names their kid that on purpose. Nobody wants that for their kid. But this name is affixed to this boy because his experience has truly been tough and he's truly living out what his name means. So three things that we can see about him from the text. The first one is that he's disabled. So the first thing we learn about this, this guy, about 20 years old, scholars believe, the first thing we learn about him after who his dad is, is that he has a debilitating physical condition. And actually you hear a description of how he became disabled earlier in the book of 2 Samuel. So I want to show you from chapter 4, verse 4. You can write that down if you want to. There's like a one-verse narrative that shows you how he came to be this way. So 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was about five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in haste, he fell and became lame. So basically what's that, what that's saying is that there was a battle that had occurred and they were fearing for the life of anyone related to Saul and Jonathan. And so whenever that sort of a message reached the house of Saul and Jonathan, they took Mephibosheth and they wanted to spare his life by like hiding out somewhere. Because the custom was in those days, if regime change occurred, they would wipe out anybody that would have a claim to the throne so that nobody could come back later and, and start division again. And so Mephibosheth fit that description. They wanted to save his life, but the nurse dropped him and something terrible happened to him. Like, like all of us that raise children are, are like afraid of doing something by accident that would cause a kid to have a boo-boo. But like there's so much complication and there's such a like a heaviness to what happened to him that it follows him for the rest of his life. I mean we all know like anyone that's raised kids like they say that you can tell the difference between the different cries like you know I'm just crying because I need attention or like you know when your kid is in pain and when your kid maybe just wants your attention or something like that. So to think about a kid at five years old going through something that's that just horrifying, really. I mean, it's a, it's a lot to take in. So he has this, this really difficult start, and then this leads him to live a life that has physical consequences, 
obviously, economic consequences because he's not able to provide for himself, not a lot of teleworking going on in the ancient Near East. Like he's not able to really contribute to society in a, in a gainful way. And then also, even on top of that stuff that would be obvious, there's, there's kind of a social stigma in that culture too. Because a lot of times people would look at these physical disabilities and see it like a curse from God. And it's not a thing that, I mean, we should be proud of when we look back at, at the history of God's people, but, you know, they would look at, at folks that had these struggles and they would say, sin had to have caused this. Think about John chapter 9. Jesus was, was ministering to a boy that was born blind, and the Pharisees responded by saying, okay, well, who sinned? Did the boy sin, maybe even in the womb, or did his parents sin? to cause this sort of thing to happen to this kid? And you remember what Jesus said in response to that? Jesus said, he said the works of God are going to be powerfully displayed in this boy. And neither one of them sent, either the boy or his parents. This thing happened to this boy so that the works of God could be magnified. And that's a hard truth for us to talk about, that horrifying things can happen to us and the people that we love, and that God can see and work an ultimate purpose for his glory out of it. It's not a thing that I'm excited to tell you, but it's a thing that we can worship God for and stand in awe of his wisdom for. Because that boy displayed the power and the wonder of God in that moment as Jesus stepped in with a sign and wonder and Mephibosheth is going to showcase the power of God, too, as a recipient of grace. So, we see Mephibosheth's poor condition here. And we see that he's disabled. But we also see that he's disappeared in a way, too. Because he's from the royal line, but he's living in this other place called Lodabar. So, whenever he gets brought up in this passage, he's about 20 years old. And they're saying, oh, Mephibosheth is still alive? Where is he? And when they, get, when they hear this name Lodibar, they, they probably have to think, why in the world would he be there? Because in Hebrew, Lodibar literally means nothing. It means like nowheresville. It means like there's like one flashing yellow light and you don't really even have to stop. Like he's, from, he's just way out in the sticks. And why in the world would he be there at 20 years old when he could have a claim to the throne? Why would he do that? Why would he choose to be there? Which leads us to the third struggle that he has. Mephibosheth is in danger. Because of that custom that I told you about, how they would be wiping out anyone with a claim to the throne, Mephibosheth is almost in worse trouble by still being alive. He's living in fear that he's finally going to be found out and that he's going to get what's coming to him. So even at 20 years old, even with all these things stacked against him, he still can't even live in the freedom that he has been given. He finds himself way out in the middle of nowhere, fearing for his life. And then what happens? The king comes knocking for him. Can you imagine the kind of feeling that someone in his position would have when you hear the horses riding up and when the neighbors say, who are they coming for this time? Because neighbors are always nosy, you know? 
Like, where would his heart be at as they escort him out of his house and say, the king wants to see you in his court? Like, what scenarios are going through his head as he makes his way to David's room? I would imagine he's shaking in his boots. And I imagine he has a lot of reason to be shaking in his boots. So how does David respond in a situation like that? Why did David call him up in the first place? Because to Mephibosheth, that seems crystal clear. I mean, this is the thing that he, like, it keeps him up at night. There's nothing in Mephibosheth's life that is more real than the fact that this was going to happen one day. And here it is. He's sitting there waiting. And so it seems, like, obvious to me that when he falls on his face, there's a whole lot of emotion going through his, through his heart and his mind and his body. So let's see how David actually responds in the moment. And let's see what that shows us about God. So number one, we saw Mephibosheth's poor condition. And number two, now we see David responds in kindness to him. Let's go back to verse one. Because now I want you to see like the red hot center of this text and how it shows you God's heart. Verse one, David said, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I may show him, here if you're an underlining person or a bolding, highlighting person, kindness. Is anyone still left because I want to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And you're like, huh, underline the word kindness. Really? Kindness seems like a, like a weak sauce word to me. Like in English, in American 21st century cultural English, I think if someone shows me kindness, it's like we stopped by Canon and somebody said, hey, it's on me today. That's kindness. A latte from Canon Coffee. Or kindness is like we're making small talk and someone's like, look at that nice haircut. Look at how you do your beard and everything. And, and people are like, oh, you're too kind. Kindness is good, but small, inconsequential. But the word kindness here in this text is not that. In this text, the word kindness is an Old Testament word called hesed. And I don't say a lot of non-English words, but like that is a word that you'll see all throughout the Old Testament and you'll see equivalents popping up in the New Testament whenever you talk about God. Sometimes people call it steadfast love. In Psalm 136, we hear your love endures forever. Your faithful love, your steadfast love. Chris Tomlin's singing about it over and over. Like, that's the thing. Whenever it says your love endures forever, it's this. It's the kindness. It's the thing that David's doing. And it's the thing that what David's doing is pointing you to. Psalm 23, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. There's faithful, steadfast love in pursuit of us. Because the Lord is our shepherd. And then, more than anything else, and I love that Kelly sang about this this morning, like only a holy God, when we think about God and his holiness, we, when we think about essentially who is God, we don't have to imagine. We don't have to like have a brainstorming session because the Bible tells us clearly who God is and what he wants us to know about himself. Sometimes it's because we asked. Moses in Exodus chapter 34 said, Lord, show me your glory. And the first thing he was like, I know you want that, but you're going to have to like 
get ready here. You got to put on this like this. Like you got to go hide somewhere. You can't handle this thing that you're asking for, but I will show you as much as I know that you can handle. And so in Exodus chapter 34, this gets quoted throughout the scriptures. This is what happens when Moses says, show me your glory. Exodus chapter 34, verse six says, the Lord passed before him. And this is what he chose to say in that moment. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, kindness, this same kindness that David is showing to Mephibosheth right here. So when God talks about himself in the most essential way possible, he says, I am someone who is slow to anger, but quick to overflow in steadfast love. Do we actually believe that? Like, like when we actually think about God and we're not in church and it's like Tuesday and we're tired because of this thing, like what do we actually instinctually think that God is like? For me, I could think that God is kind of the opposite of the way that he's talking about himself. I could think that God is like an imperfect biological dad, a dad that is impossible to please, a dad that even though you're trying so hard to figure out what impresses him, he's still kind of cold, and he's still probably only going to show you attention when he needs to correct you for something. Like, maybe that's what we think about the Lord. Maybe there's something in your own life, a pain that you carry, an experience that you had that's informing the way that you think about what God is like. And I'm not saying, stop it. But I am saying, let the Bible teach you here. Let the Bible show you what he really is like, and then ask God to enlarge your heart so that this truth about him can fit inside. Steadfast love is, and I want to say this carefully because I want to be faithful about what God is like. So go with me here. I would say that steadfast love is the first impulse that would come out of God's heart. I'm not saying God is an impulsive being at all, but I am saying that God leads with steadfast love. He has justice, wrath. He has all of these attributes. But in the text, we see that he is abounding in steadfast love. There is a category up here. There is a superlative place that the text is putting steadfast love in. That's the overflow of God's heart in so many situations, steadfast love. And we know that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We don't just like trip up sometimes and say things that we don't mean. Like sometimes we just get found out saying things that we do mean and it's not really convenient. So like, you know, if it's two o'clock in the morning and like, a five-year-old comes into my room and like shakes my shoulder and asks me for something, what's going to be my first impulse? Like grumpiness, right? Like, like, yeah, stuff that I don't want to think about. Things that, things that you don't want to say. Things that you end up hopefully apologizing for. Like things are overflowing from you that are probably not presentable in that moment. When you wake God up, metaphorically, three o'clock in the morning, what would come out of him first? To his very core, 
He is a God that abounds in steadfast love. If you pour out a little bit of God, you're going to see steadfast love. He leads with that. And as, as his people, as his image bearers, we're called to reflect that. So this kind of heart is motivating David in this moment to respond to Mephibosheth in this way. So he's honoring his covenant to Jonathan, which I wish I had more time to talk about, but he's also just reflecting the kindness of God. So we see three things that David provides for Mephibosheth, and we can relate as children of God too. Number one, he provides Mephibosheth with protection, and all these are in verse 7 of chapter 9. So he provides Mephibosheth with protection. The first thing David says, as he's as Mephibosheth is on his face saying, I'm your servant, and probably trembling and thinking, have mercy. The first thing David says is, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. When David speaks those words, don't be afraid, I would imagine that the tone of the entire interaction changes in a moment. There's a tension that melts away. That same sort of tension melted away last week on the threshing floor, whenever Boaz, woken up in the middle of the night, responds to Ruth in exactly the same way. Don't be afraid. Everything's on the line right now. But my steadfast love can be a refuge for you. You're going to be safe. So he provides protection to him. He also provides lavish provision. He doesn't say like, get whatever you want off the dollar menu. It's on me today. He lavishes Mephibosheth with so many gifts. So the next part of verse 7 says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. So this would have meant that the family estate would have been returned to him, including the servants and the wealth. And then in verse 9, he even says, hey, Ziba, come over here and I'm going to give you a new job description because now you work for him because your inheritance is being restored. Even though everything in your heart and your mind and in the culture would say, I only deserve to be deleted. I'm going to be restored to the place that I never thought could come back. Mephibosheth's days in the slums are over. And he becomes a picture of something you would have never seen in that culture. Somebody from a despised family line with nothing to offer to society, rising through the ranks and gaining status. Completely unheard of. Like, probably perplexing if you were to be made aware of it in that, in that time. And God's just using this to display his glory. So protection, provision, and then adoption comes to Mephibosheth, the end of verse 7. At the end of verse 7, he says, you will eat at my table always. He doesn't say, here's a gift card, or here's a reloadable card. It's fine. Just keep on spending. Whatever you need, just run out. You got it. You did it. Whatever. You don't have to send me the receipts. It's fine. He doesn't just want Mephibosheth to have this stuff. He wants him to have himself. He wants him to be a part of the household. He doesn't just want to make sure that he's comfortable. He gives him a new identity. So I love the end of verse 11, 
because it, it restates this again. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. He's not an outsider there. David has brought him in. What a picture of the gospel, y'all. A broken nobody, an enemy of the king, gets not what he deserves. He gets provision, protection, and adoption. It's just a beautiful thing. It's a thing that should lead us to worship the Lord, honestly. So we see his poor condition. We see David's kindness. And then we're wrapping up today by saying that Jesus is the greater David. The kindness that we see coming out of David's heart should point us to a bigger reality that's ours in Jesus. And that when we look at ourselves in the light of God's word, we might look a little like Mephibosheth in the mirror. So remember our main point today, that we're receiving God's welcoming grace, and then, we're gonna, and then when we receive it, we can overflow with it, radiating it to the people that we're around. So we're going to finish out the text by seeing how this plays out once Mephibosheth receives this stuff. How does he receive the grace? He does it humbly. So let's look at verse 8. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, after he receives this threefold gift, he says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That's like the show-stopping language in this thing. Like, that's the thing that you either want to skip over or you want to, like, do a deep dive on because there's an intensity to this language. And Mephibosheth is saying, I do not deserve this gift that you're giving me. You know when you're over at someone's house and, like, they've already cooked this big meal for you and you ate it all and you played cards or whatever and then they bring out the dessert and you were already kind of like looking at your watch because, you know, you got a thing to do or like you're this many episodes behind on this thing and whatever. And then they bring out the dessert, even though you're like planning to get in the car. And, and you're like, oh, no, I don't know how many points that would be. Like, uh, oh, you know, I'll take it anyway. It's not like that. Mephibosheth believes to the core of his being that this is a mistake. I do not deserve the kind of treatment that you're giving me right now. I know myself, and I know that things like this should not go to a person like me, to a dead dog such as I. In the Hebrew culture, that's about as like intentionally gross as you can paint a word picture. And we should all recognize that in and of ourselves, apart from the Lord, we'd be saying the same thing as him. If we were honest about our own hearts, you know, how we said last week, character is what you are in the dark. If we were honest about where the states of our hearts and our souls really were, we'd be saying what he said. We should recognize that we really are dead dogs and that we really, in faith, have been set at the change table. We should, we should use that as fuel for worship. Yeah, our, our debt to God is just infinite. And if we were honest with ourselves, we would say that we were worse than him. If we just went ahead and, and led with all the things that we hope people would never find out about us, 
we would put ourselves down at that same level. We have done far worse than Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth didn't even put himself in this situation. We put ourselves in this situation through our rebellious hearts, choosing to go astray again. And even like tomorrow, we'll, we'll choose it again. But God lavishes his love on us. In the kingdom of God, the strong and independent, the people that think they can just like burst the doors open to the throne room and demand the thing that they deserve, they get it. They get what they deserve. They get the justice of God. They get what's coming to them because that's how it works in the kingdom. But also in the kingdom, the meek, the helpless, the poor in spirit, the broken, they're the ones that receive the blessing because the king can get all the glory for it. So we should receive God's kindness like Mephibosheth did. Honestly, humbly, but then as God's image bearers, we got to radiate that stuff out. We should be naturally and generously showing steadfast love. You know that kind of love that the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about? Never stopping, never giving up, always and forever. That patient kind of persistent love, that should be naturally coming out of us as believers. It should just, it should mark how we talk in our homes. It should mark how we deal with our coworkers. It should, like, it's not like you're going to write a purpose statement and everyone's going to be able to, like, say it because they know you and they're your coworkers. But, like, that should flavor the sorts of relationships that you have because it should be overflowing from your heart already. So two practical ways that we can show the hospitality that God shows to us. Two practical ways. And because we really should be practicing this stuff so that people can see these works just like we're seeing this work and they can return praise to God whenever they see why it is the way it is. Two practical ways that I can encourage us as a church to be reflecting that. One way is not going to be for everyone, and that's okay. But one way is something that everyone can practice. The first way that we can show warm welcome is by engaging in the foster care and adoption community in Washington County or Berkeley County or wherever you're living. This is the one that I acknowledge is not for everyone. We have different seasons of life. We shouldn't feel guilty if we can't sacrifice everything to be involved as a foster parent and adoptive parent. But I will tell you from my own experience that foster care is one of the most vivid, powerful ways that you can not only tell somebody the gospel, but show them the gospel. If we're talking about steadfast, patient, lavish love, foster care will put you in a position whether, where you're either going to show that or you're probably going to blow up. It's a high-pressure, long-haul kind of thing that will bring everything out of you and make you dependent on the Lord at the same time. It's a beautiful way to show that love to people and to also like be picturing how God provides welcome to people. And you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, fostering. Like, you hold babies, that's cool. Like, you hold other people's babies, and like, you're allowed to hold other people's babies. That's, that's cool. Like, it's not less than that, but it is also bio mom. It's also aunt and uncle and 
social workers and, and the other people that you come into contact with, it's not, there are just so many opportunities that you can be patiently showing people the gospel. And that's a whole other thing. Okay, so that's one of them. And you should think about it. You should say, God, are you leading me to be involved in any way with this? Are you leading me to pair up with a foster parent and give them a break every once in a while? Because they gotta go on a date night or they have to go like buy toilet paper and they haven't been able to make it out of the house and I don't even know how long. Like how would God be moving your heart? Just to be a help, to be a respite parent who can do a long weekend of babysitting for them so that they can really recharge their batteries? Is God calling you further up and further in into that by actually opening your home? I don't know. Don't write it off. What could the Lord be doing in your heart right now? So that's the one that's not for everyone. But the one that is for everyone is that we can be using our dinner tables, or even if you don't have a table, you can be utilizing your meal time. Everybody eats something. You can use it as a tactical weapon for the gospel. Like your meal times are opportunities to bring people into the heart of who you really are. Your meal times and your tables, if you choose to give it away, can be a chance to really showcase generosity to people, to really form bonds with people, to pave roads relationally with people that the gospel can travel down. But doing that means asking God to soften your heart and make your heart generous and flexible. Because you know, like, you're not gonna have time to vacuum every time somebody wants to come to your house. And your throw pillows are not gonna be in like the right place and maybe you might wonder if they're gonna come through the door like just now, what they're gonna think about you because you don't look like you have it all together. Or you may say, my home is my refuge. My home is my castle and work is so hard and things are so wild and weird in my life that by the time I clock out and drive all the way home, I don't know that I wanna give that to anybody. You may be in a season of life where you really do need to rest. You should probably listen to at least part of that, but you should be asking the Lord, am I hoarding God's blessings? Am I not trusting that God will meet me in a place of neediness? Or am I willing to just open up and say, this is who I am and this is who I have to offer. Can we just trust the Lord together? I'm tired. My home smells funny and I can't figure out what the smell is. <laughs> but can we like trust God together? And we don't have to be perfect. Look around, I'm not perfect either. God can do beautiful things with that. That's where it really, really happens. And people will trust the Lord and learn more about him in a context like that than so many other places. So we can, as God's image bearers, be warmly welcoming, not only to the people that can pay us back, but to the people that God really has a heart for, to vulnerable people, to people that you might not even want to hang out with naturally, but people that God is calling us to love. So let's wrap it up today by looking at how this text closes. So we see this guy in a poor state, fearing for his life, receiving rich blessing from the king and becoming adopted into his family. We see a beautiful 13 verse rags to riches story that you can read in like 90 seconds. 
and you see this celestial thing almost happening to him. He is like totally extreme makeover. You don't even know who he is anymore. And then the very last line of verse 13 says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Why would they write it that way? Like, God wrote this book on purpose in a perfect way to tell us stories, to tell us truth that we need to internalize. Why would, even after all of that, why would the text remind us that he's lame in both his feet? I don't have, like, the perfect answer to that. But I can reflect with us as we're walking with God. I can say that when God steps into my heart and makes me a new creation, the old does pass away eventually. But we're all still living with brokenness, thorns, struggles. And just because Mephibosheth is one of the king's children didn't change a really painful truth about who he is. So if you're walking through struggle right now, and if you've walked through this chronically, for years struggling with the same thing. And if you would find yourself saying, God, when, how long are you gonna let me struggle with this thing? I really do believe. Why would you not wipe this out? Why don't you remove this when I ask? If you find yourself there and you're not alone, we just don't talk about it very much. If you find yourself in that spot, look at how the Lord chose to deal with Mephibosheth. Richly blessed with every spiritual blessing, richly blessed materially speaking, yet still in a state of brokenness for the rest of his life. God is wisely using these broken circumstances that you find yourself in to lead us to trust him, to depend on him every single day. He knows our frame. He knows we're just dust. He's calling us to sit at his feet and wait on his provision, to be constantly dependent on him. And I'm not going to say every single struggle has a, a really defined thing that we can tell you, but, but God does work all of these difficulties into the maximum amount of worship for himself. And if we can look at our struggles and say, God, even though I don't understand it, I trust you then that's where the Lord wants us to be found. So I'm praying and hoping that as we step out in faith to give people warm welcomes, to build tough relationships, to get over the speed bumps in pre-existing relationships so that we can still live the gospel with people, I'm here with y'all to say, let's struggle through these broken things together. Let's trust God even in the insurmountable looking things and know that he's ready to equip us. As we close, I want you to see from Romans chapter 5 how our spiritual conditions really kind of mirror Mephibosheth's physical conditions. Think about the blessings that David got, that David gave to him. Think about the blessings we receive in Christ. This is where we'll end. Romans 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person 
would even dare to die for him. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Skip down to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled are we being saved by his life? We find ourselves just like him, looking at Jesus as the hero. Let's pray. God, we just give you so much praise for the kind of blessings that we get that we don't deserve. Lord, would you help us to be honest with ourselves in moments like these when we're tempted to say, I mean, I'm not that bad. Would you move our hearts to say, I'm as bad as people think and maybe even worse. But I've received so much grace from my Father. Would you help us to be so humbly dependent on you that it just causes faith to blossom? Would you give us a vision of you and a love for you that would lead us to just boast in how good you are? And to forget even talking about how good or bad we are, but to just turn our attention toward how wonderful you are in a way that captivates our thoughts and our words. Would you just renew our minds in that way, Lord? Would you help us to just boast in you? We trust that you can do that, Lord, and we ask that you would. In your name, amen.